Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I want to thank you for listening. Please look around the site. We've got uh, 3,400-plus audios featuring great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea and other lands, Bible studies. My books are on Amazon.com. You can contact me at bob.j.faulkner.72 at gmail.com. Please also check out the new website that allows you to tune in to the new Hackberry Radio. Just go to Hackberry House of Chosun. Dot com and take a look and a listen. I'm reading today from a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's volume one of a three-volume set, a modernized abridgment of the Puritan classic by William Gurnall. William Gurnall was the English Bible scholar and pastor who died 1679. <clears throat> Last time he was talking about false symptoms of the fact that maybe your grace is declining? Well, here are genuine symptoms of that. Pay attention. First, a careless attitude toward temptation. Has your conscience become so inattentive and drowsy that you give little thought to the devil's snares? David's heart cut him to the quick when he only tore Saul's robes. Later, he didn't seem to feel a twinge when he cast his eye on Bathsheba and lust filled his heart. Being so easily led by Satan from one horrid sin to another shows that godliness in David had become heavy-eyed and his heart less holy than it once had been. When a person's conscience is numb to temptation, his graces are in a critical condition. If your conscience is alert to temptation but heartless to fight against it, your graces must still be listed as very ill. A man who lets temptation loiter along the borders of his conscience proves himself a poor guardian of his godliness. If you do not take up arms against your enemy and seek God earnestly and fervently for deliverance, you may be sure that lust will soon gain the advantage over grace. Being able to resist temptation does not guarantee that God's grace in you is strong, however. Lest you grow complacent, ask yourself why you are resisting the devil's trap. Perhaps you remember a time when your love for Christ would have spit fire in Satan's face for tempting you to sin, but now that holy fire is so nearly extinguished that some base motive is the only thing that keeps you from sinning. If all you care about is your own reputation, for instance, and you have little or no regard for God's reputation, your grace is at a low ebb. After all, He is the one most offended by your sin. Every act of grace must be a building stone in the monument to His glory, or it becomes a stone of offense. Another symptom, an inattentive attitude in worship and service. Perhaps at one time your heart eagerly answered the call of the Holy Spirit, bidding you to seek God's face. Psalm 27, 8, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. You longed as much for the season of worship to come as the sinner does for it to be gone. You cherished time alone with your Heavenly Father. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is a sign of health. For a craving soul is a thriving soul. On the other hand, the soul that does not constantly cry out to God for spiritual food, 
will grow weaker by the day. Those who commune most with God know best how to serve Him. A captain can lead his soldiers only if they stay within the sound of his voice. Your frequent retreats into the secret places of God assure that you will hear Him when He speaks and receive your orders direct from Him. It is not frequency of duty, but spirituality in duty that causes a Christian's graces to thrive. Just to be busy doing something for the Lord is not enough. You must make certain your work is stamped with faith, zeal, and love. If you find yourself going about your spiritual tasks out of habit rather than love, it's time to repair your armor. Does your heart still receive the same generous portions of spiritual nourishment when you go uh, to commune with God? This communion should strengthen both your faith and your obedience. Or do you listen and pray but, but no longer find strength to keep a promise or power to win over temptation? How you dishonor the Lord when you come down from the Mount of Communion and break the tables of His law as soon as you are off the place. To find no renewed faith and no renewed strength in your communion with Him is a sure sign of spiritual decline. Thirdly, an obsessive attitude toward your work. How easy it is to let the responsibilities of job and family leave us in a less spiritual frame of mind than we once possessed. If we let them, the cares of this world will follow us into our prayer closets and cleave to our spirits, giving a stale earthly odor to our prayers and meditations. One way to become weighed down by the cares of this life is to put too much stock in your worldly estate. Perhaps you work diligently but receive little remuneration, or you preach and receive little recognition. When you first became a Christian, all you cared about was getting to know Christ better. Estate and rank meant nothing to you, and life's disappointments only drew you closer to God. But now, this hankering of your heart after the world's treasures and its esteem drives you relentlessly. How urgently you need to have your grace restored. If you will labor less to promote your earthly account and pray harder to improve your fund of grace, you'll soon find your soul at peace with God's providence. And now, Another topic, how to recover from declining grace. The Christian's armor becomes damaged in two ways. The first is by violent assault, when you are overcome by temptation to sin. The second is by neglect, when you fail to perform those duties, which, like oil, keep your armor polished and shining. So, inquire which has been the cause. It is likely the two agents have concurred. A. How to recover when sin is the cause. A. Number one, renew your repentance. Here is Christ's counsel to the church at Ephesus. Repent and do the first works. In essence, he is saying repent so that you may once again do your first works. A repenting soul is promised healing in Hosea 14. Therefore, go and search your heart as diligently as you would your house 
if you suspected a murderer was hiding, waiting to cut your throat in the night. When you have found the sin that has done the mischief, fill your heart with shame for it and indignation against it. Cast it before the Lord in a heartbreaking confession. Secondly, reaffirm your faith. When you have renewed your repentance, then renew your faith in God's promise to pardon. Repentance is a purgative to remove the tendency to sin. Faith is a tonic to restore strength. Even if your godly character has wasted away to almost nothing, faith can quickly restore its strength. Faith infuses you with peace from the promise called peace in believing. From peace flows joy, and joy provides strength according to the scripture. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Third, renounce your lusts. Having repented and claimed God's promise of forgiveness, back up your actions by rooting out sin wherever it threatens to crop up. Where weeds thrive, flowers die. Grace that does not grow vigorously and blossom profusely is most likely being choked out by some contrary lust. You know the hardy constitution of your lusts. If you do not mortify them daily by the Spirit, they will spring up overnight. So chop at the root of every sin with this axe of mortification. And then watch God bless and improve the character of your grace. Next, how to recover when neglect is the cause. When the armor of God, which girds your soul, is rusty from disuse rather than tarnished by willful sin, follow God's instructions for the strengthening of grace. If a fire goes out for lack of wood, the only solution is to lay on more wood. Likewise with grace. If neglect of your Christian duties causes its decline, you must restore those duties which kindled a fire under your grace in the first place. I refer you to four principal duties. Number one, read your Bible. Perhaps you say, oh, but I do read God's Word. Then read it more. The Word shows your graces a perfect picture of the object of their affections, Christ. And just as a young man's heart leaps at the sight of his beloved, so your graces come to life when they behold the Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. At the same time, when you see what your sins cost Christ, it should produce in you a godly sorrow and a hatred for sin. Secondly, meditate. Meditation is to grace as bellows are to a fire. It revives the languishing soul with fresh thoughts of God. As you ponder over them, a holy fire will burn and your heart will grow warm within you. Resolve to spend time every day thinking about what has passed between God and you. Think first of all about the mercies you have received from the Lord. Don't be like Pilate who asked a question but did not wait for a reply. Stay until you have received a full report of God's gracious dealings with you, and you will find memories of mercies, both new and old, flooding your soul. Meditating often on the magnitude of God's goodness teaches us to rejoice even in times of trouble, for the little evil that is our portion is drowned in the sea of his abundant mercies 
on our behalf. Second, reflect upon yourself and your own behavior. What has it been toward God and toward man during the day? Ask yourself, soul, where have you been? What have you done for God and how? In this reflection, do not make excuses for yourself nor pamper yourself for Ultimately, God will judge you with full injustice. And then thirdly, pray. A soul in meditation is on its way to prayer. The two duties join hands to bring the soul into close communion with God. Meditation lays the wood in order, but the spark to kindle it comes from above and must be fetched by prayer. How can your soul flame with love for God if you never get close enough to Him to catch that heavenly spark? As it is with your love, so also with your faith, your joy, your patience, indeed, all your graces. Astronomers say the planets have the greatest influence when they are in conjunction with the sun. In a spiritual sense, the graces of a saint never work more perfectly than when aligned with prayer. For this puts them in closest conjunction and communion with God. How often in the Psalms, for example, Psalm 56, do we see a dark cloud upon David's spirit at the beginning of his prayer? But before he has finished talking with the Father, his spirit has soared to new heights of faith and high acclamations of praise. Fourth, fellowship with other Christians. It's no surprise to hear a house has been robbed when it is miles from the nearest neighbor. If you keep your distance from the saints, Satan can more easily sabotage you. But if you walk in fellowship, you have the added protection of their graces surrounding you and ministering to you in times of trial. The apostle harnesses two duties to the same plow, to hold fast the profession of our faith and to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. When you forsake the communion of saints, you take a dangerous step toward apostasy. Do not forget what happened to Demas in this regard. Paul said of him, He hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Next time we'll start talking about reasons for the exhortation. Reasons for the exhortation in Ephesians 6.13. Thank you so much again for being here. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.